So thank you so much. Thank you for your graciousness. Uh, Kathy Stolwick showed up at our house yesterday with a book, big bouquet of flowers, and there was a little gift uh, expression of love to us. So we want to just thank you for all of that. And uh, let's just uh, open our hearts to the word of the Lord this morning. I'm going to pray, okay? Can I have you stand one more time? Would you mind doing that? Thank you so much. So Father, I just thank you this morning as uh, we dismiss middle school right now. Young people can slip out. And Lord, I just pray that you'll help all of our children, all of our young people, Lord, hear your word and may it just so penetrate their lives. Even as now, we're going to look at your word, Father, May it be a word that we don't just uh, hear with our ears, but actually penetrates into our innermost being, speaks into our spirit. Lord, becomes assimilated and becomes part of who we are and becomes uh, an expression of how we think and how we speak and how we live. Lord, I pray today that you will honor your word with signs following. I pray for those that are afflicted in body, those that are struggling emotionally, mentally, financially, relationally, spiritually, whatever uh, component of life that there's a struggle. I pray today that you would break in Jesus, that you, who are the one that delivers us from all of our fears, you're the one, Lord, who comes and walks beside us in every hour of trouble and difficulty. Father, I pray today that your spirit would move supernaturally in our innermost being. I ask today that your word would become like a fire within our spirit, oh God. It would just come alive within us and there would be such a hunger and a passion and a desire for you. Maybe we haven't had in a long time and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, I... I entitled the sermon, Are You Really Listening? But what I'm going to say is I think we all are listening to something. Something is shaping the way we think, our viewpoint of life. And they, it even shapes how we think and feel and in turn leads to how we act and speak. So I want us to reflect on how our thinking and emotions affect and influence and lead actions that ultimately have powerful consequences. You know, James Emery White in his book, A Mind for God, identifies the challenges that we are faced in the battle for our minds because there is a warfare going on right now. And you know, some people think there's all these conspiracies. I want to tell you there's only one conspiracy. There's an enemy against the kingdom of God and he's at work and he even works through flesh and blood, but it's not people that are coming up with these things. There's an adversary that's against you and I who are part of God's kingdom and he's trying to seduce us in our emotions and in our thought life so that it produces the wrong way to see things and eventually we make poor decisions. So Emery White says this, James Emery White, he says, consider the media, perhaps the most important challenge facing Christian reflection. At its most base, the media tells us both what to think about and then how to think about it. I don't even know if you know this, but we are, you know, obviously limited to all, that's, all the information. It's all been decided for you what you're going to hear and how you should respond to it. As a matter of fact, when we, when we talk, uh, uh, Christian Smith says this, he's a sociologist, he says, we may talk about the culture, the media, television, Hollywood, but if we think systemically, these are just euphemisms. These are just expressions of speeches for a worldview that constitutes the human self in a very particular way. As autonomous, 
rational, self-seeking, cost-benefit, calculating consumer. That's really what's going on. This constitutes a moral order with particular assumptions, narratives, commitments, beliefs, values, and goals. And by the way, that's so true. And out of all of this comes how you and I think, how we feel, how we act, what we purchase, what we don't purchase, how we live our lives. This is all impacting how we live life. Malcolm Mudridge tells of taking Mother Teresa for her first trip to the United States. She went to a studio in New York, a television studio. You can imagine, you know, she's not used to watching television. She has no idea what's going on. And as a result, she was like totally unprepared for all of the constant interruptions in the studio because every few moments, boom, a commercial would come on. You know how that works. I mean, we don't even notice it, you know, commercials pop in and out. And on that particular morning, Mudridge observed that all of the co commercials were dealing with food. Has anybody ever noticed there's a lot of food commercials on TV? You'll really notice it in a day of prayer and fasting if you watch TV. I'll just, I'll just warn you. And, and most of the commercials that day were like the non-fattening, low in calories type of commercials, right? You know, if you eat this food, it's low in fat and low in calories, you know, all that kind of stuff. And Mother Teresa, now she's taking all of this stuff in, but you have to understand, when you're not used to watching television as a medium and you're listening to the messaging, it impacts you totally differently than when you and I are just, you know, been enamored with it for so long we don't even notice it or we think we don't notice it. And as she's taking it all in, she's got this growing sense of unbelief. And this is in her own words, was, was trying, her own work, she's, she's actually out there trying to nourish the starving. Like, can you imagine listening to these low-calorie, not, she's trying to get, you know, food inside of people's lives, put some flesh on human skeletons, basically. And suddenly, without even thinking, she says out loud, I see that Christ is needed in television studios. And a total silence fell on the studio and everyone there. And Mudridge said that in the midst of the media fantasy, reality had suddenly intruded. But it took someone being still and reflecting on what reality was all about. Because of the influences of the media on our world and our minds, the dynamics of reflection on cultural discourse, which, by the way, is generally carried through the media, and I, I would also add in education, is decisive. Few of us would have thought twice about the commercial content, much less the messages that were, being, that were sending that was so evident to Mother Teresa. While the world was starving, we were concerned about you know, losing a few pounds. How many thinks that there's a disconnect? Disconnects, a, there's, there's something intrinsically crazy about that. Could you see it from her vantage point? So what are we really listening to? And how is it that we're hearing this hearing actually shaping the essence of our lives. Charles Colston and Nancy Piercy co-author a book, now, how, how Now Shall We Live? And the book actually addresses the significant issue of worldview and its impact on our lives. And Colston says that some years ago, in the middle of a doctrinal discussion at a campus, a young man differed with Nancy Piercy over a point that the apostle was making in 1 Corinthians. And he says to her, I disagree with you. No, she said, you disagree with the Apostle Paul. And she said it very gently, correcting him. Okay, then, I disagree with Paul, he shrugged. And he went on to explain that as he saw it, the Bible was written a long time ago from a different age and that today the Holy Spirit can reveal even new truth. 
Truth that may even contradict what the Bible teaches. Now, this young man, listen, was a sincere Christian. He was a president of a Christian campus group and a leader among his peers. But he had absorbed the mental framework of a secular culture and was reinterpreting scripture in the context of that culture. What I'm saying is so many people today, when they come to the scriptures, are not allowing the scriptures to judge them. They're judging the scripture. And that's problematic, as we're about to see today. He had lost his understanding of truth and revelation of a worldview that roots scripture in the God who's the ultimate reality. And you see, this actually carried over into his personal choices, evidenced by the fact that he was sleeping with his girlfriend. He was not untaught in biblical ethics, and he was not deliberately backsliding. His honest convictions told him that the Bible consisted of nothing more than human documents and therefore was not normative for life. And when he read the scriptures, it was filtered through a mental grid set by a non-Christian worldview, resulting in a distorted understanding of doctrine or teaching and personal ethics. And you know, folks, this is so prevalent and is so seeped into the church that now we can actually have all kinds of discussions on what we want to believe or not because you see, the scripture no longer is evaluating us, we're evaluating the scriptures. You say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, eventually it leads to consequences. And we're living in a world today that people don't want to take personal responsibility, but they want the rest of society to take on the responsibility for their consequences of poor decisions. And that's where we're living today. We're now entering here in the book of Proverbs into a new subunit from chapter 22, 17 to chapter 24 and verse 22, which are entitled the 30 sayings of the wise. These sayings are primarily exhortations. And you know, you say, well, what's an exhortation, pastor? Well, that's a strong moral urging to be obedient to the text that we're going to hear today. In other words, God wants to say something to us, and as far as he's concerned, these aren't optional. These are something that you and I need to appropriate in our lives and allow them to evaluate our own hearts and minds so that you and I can conform to the word of God and in the process of being conformed to the word of God, become transformed in our thinking and eventually in our personal lives. It's designed to change us. And so if we're not being changed, there's something wrong. We're actually reading the Bible through a wrong filter and a wrong lens. We need to have a a mind that opens up to God and says, Lord, here am I, your servant. These are your words speaking to my life. You evaluate me. I'm going to stand before you one day. God, you are going to evaluate my life. You are the one who is the ultimate judge of my life. I'm not even the ultimate judge of my life, nor are my peers the ultimate judge, but Lord, you alone. I was reading in the book of Zephaniah this morning. You know, he he warns about the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? It's the day that God comes to rectify all injustice in this world. And sometimes as humanity, we think we can do it. And we do such a poor job of it. Because we really don't understand the context of other people, but God understands every human heart. You know, it's interesting. There's much debate about this particular stretch of Scripture. Because there are much similarities with other ancient Near Eastern literature, particularly the Egyptian instructions of Amenemopi. Amenemopi. Okay. <laughs> hey, it's a tough name. What can I say? <laughs> However, there are parts of the 30 sayings 
here found in our Hebrew Bibles that are not on those Egyptian 30 sayings. Actually, by the way, I've read the translation of them, so that's true. That have more in common with Aramaic or Akkadian wisdom traditions. And I like what Tremper, Tremper Longman, how he summarizes it best when he writes, uh, perhaps the best conclusion is that there's not a specific relationship between Proverbs and Amenemope, okay? Rather, both texts are part of an international tradition of wisdom that shares many similarities. And in light of the similarities, the differences, particularly the role of Yahweh in the wisdom of Proverbs, stands out even more. Now, why am I saying that? Because let's go back. You know, the Egyptians and the other groups don't have the beautiful statement that we find in the book of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, this is all tied into, you know, the fact that we have a relationship with God. So what is being conveyed is that there are other ancient wisdom texts that may have similar moral instructions. You know, there's other religions that actually teach morals. That's true. But what makes Proverbs or the Hebrew wisdom tradition different is that the foundation of it stands upon a person, upon God himself, whose words instruct us how to live wisely or successfully. And so today I want to look briefly at the first six sayings, because there's 30 of them. And the first one is really a prologue that introduces the other 29. And then we're going to zero in on the next five, which I've broken down into two elements. That which we need to avoid and that which we need to embrace. But listen to what Psalm 90 verse 12 is. Because Psalm 90 is a, what we would call a wisdom psalm. And I love this verse. Teach us to number our days that we may gain, and another translation says, develop a heart of wisdom. You know, my, my prayer preaching through Proverbs is that you and I will develop a heart of wisdom, that you and I will gain an understanding of who God is, and we will begin to conform our lives to his ways, that our lives would be transformed and shaped, and all of a sudden that you and I would begin to live wisely, and our decisions would be so good that it would have outcomes that are so positive. That you and I would have an impact and an influence, not only in our family, but in our city and in our province and in our nation. That we, we would actually have amazingly dynamic impact in our world. So this is what we're going to try to accomplish as we hear these words. Developing a heart of wisdom. Let's begin with Proverbs twenty two seventeen. Pay attention and turn your ear to the sayings of the wise. Apply your heart to what I teach, for it is pleasing when you keep them in your heart and have them, all of them, ready on your lips. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read those two verses, when you think about what it's saying, it's basically saying that you and I need to listen with intention, that you and I need to reflect on what we're hearing, that you and I need to meditate on these words. As a matter of fact, the, the key to a successful life with God is we meditate on God's word day and night. That's when the promise kicks in that your life and my life will be successful. It says when we do these things, then we begin to internalize these things, and then we begin to communicate these things because it becomes part of who we are. We are to embrace these concepts by reflecting deeply upon them, which is what meditation is. And by the way, this would suggest that I must memorize these things, otherwise how would I even think about them and how could I even speak of them if I don't even know what they are? 
I think you and I know a lot of information. As a matter of fact, we know so much information, it's probably cluttering our brain. But I mean, if we would just sit down and say, okay, I'm going to just try focusing on what God has to say. How many think it might be wise to listen to the wisest person that ever lived? Well, that's who God is, folks. You're going to gain a lot of insight when you listen to what he has to say. And I think the more we listen, the more wise we're going to become. Bruce Walkie says, even the most brilliant moral sayings are powerless without personal application. Anybody say amen to that? What good is it if you hear these things, but you don't do them? We need to master these words. We need to internalize them until eventually we find ourselves not only talking about them, but they're actually being expressed through the way we make decisions. We're actually making wise choices in our lives because we know what the scriptures teach, and it's actually so internalized, we're, we're not even thinking about it, we're just doing the right thing. How many have ever had that moment where you've actually done the right thing or said the right thing and you even surprised yourself? Go, where did that come from? Anybody have that moment? Go, where did that come from? That's because you've been meditating on the Word of God. It just kind of came out of you. You just go, whoa. You know, I always loved that story when I was in Jamaica, and that guy came up to me and wanted to sell me drugs, you know? I wasn't meditating on, I'm going to do street witnessing in Jamaica. I wasn't even thinking like that. I was just coming out to, you know, go buy something, and this guy walks up to me and says, man, I've got something good for you. I said, what is it? He says, I've got some powerful drugs. I'm going, really? i got something great. He goes, well, what's that? You know? Jesus came right out of my mouth, and he goes... Well, I'm a Pentecostal. I didn't even think about it. And I said, you're sure not acting like one. You know? You know? And then he says to me, you know, you don't understand how hard it is to make a living here. I said, oh, you mean you don't understand? I said, what you're telling me is you don't know how to trust God. How many know? I wasn't even thinking. They were just popping out of my mouth. And then I was able to say to him, maybe the fact that I'm here today and you're here right now, maybe God sent me from Canada to tell you, you need to learn how to trust God. Boy, did that ever shake that guy up. How many think that might have shook somebody up? So I grabbed him by the hands. I said, hey, let's pray right now. God's going to help you. And you know all these other vendors that all had some other junk? They saw me praying with this guy. I was not bothered from that moment on. <laughs> so if you want peace, just start praying, right? Let me move on. Proverbs twenty two nineteen says, so that your trust may be in the Lord. Isn't this amazing? When we let the word of God so dwell in our lives, it brings an amazing, it says trust in this translation, but the word is actually confidence. It's translated confidence in other translations. It could be translated trust or confidence. What happens is when you and I internalize what God has to say, it creates a confidence inside of us. We have a trust in God. How many think that's an amazing thing in a time when people are fearful and don't know where to turn when you and I are walking in confidence? How many go, I love that. You and I can have strong confidence. You and I can have a sense that we know where we're going in life where most people are in a confusion. I love this. He says, I teach you today, even you, so that your trust may be in the Lord. I teach you today, even you. Have I not written 30 sayings for you, sayings of counsel and knowledge, teaching you to be what? Honest and to speak the truth so that you may bring back truthful reports to those who serve you. And I love the way uh, Derek Kidner relates these in his commentary. He says this about it. Does he, does he read with alert concentration? Verse 17. See, pay attention. How much is retained and ready for passing on? Apply your heart to what I teach. How much is, uh, does he receive it in the spirit in which it was given to deepen his trust? How many think, I probably could trust God more? Anybody here up for that? 
Okay. To guide his decisions. Anybody trying to make a decision right now? How many need guidance in a decision? Word of God will give you. It says in verse 20, strengthen his grasp of truth. Does he see himself as the virtual envoy? In other words, God says, I'm sending you. Hey, folks, you and I can only be sent by God if we're willing to be an ambassador for him and communicate his message, not ours. A lot of us are giving us people their, our own opinion. Who cares? As a matter of fact, I don't even care about my own opinion. I just care about God's opinion. My job is to communicate what God has to say, not what I think. And then it says, those whose knowledge of the truth depends on him. What's Kidner saying? Are we grasping what we're about to hear? Is it so internalized that it becomes who we are and therefore we communicate both in word and actions to others? Is this not what Jesus talked about when he was saying on the Sermon of the Mount that you and I need to be doers of the word of God and not strictly hearers? As a matter of fact, Jesus said it this way, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And he says, when the rain came down and the stream rose and the winds blew. In other words, when COVID comes on the scene or any other malady or difficulty or challenge that comes in your life and it beats against your life, you don't crumble. You don't falter. You don't fail because you have a foundation that's a rock. I don't live in fear. Why should we live in fear? What are we to be afraid of? If you have God for you, who can be against you? We need to have confidence, folks. And it comes from the word of the Lord. And we need to hear it. We need to internalize it. So let's take a look at those five sayings really quickly. I just put down two sets of expectations for living wisely. How many want to be successful? How many want to live wisely? How many want to live a godly life? Here they come. Saying number two, it says, Here's one of the things we need to avoid. I, think, I just call them dangers and pitfalls and snares. These are the things I want to avoid, okay? The first danger is believing that we need to exploit other people in order to have our needs met. Isn't that powerful? Listen to what it says here. Do not exploit the poor because they are poor, and do not crush the needy in court. I'm going to expand it. I'm going to make a wider application. Don't take advantage of other people. On any terms, not just even financial, in any which way, don't take advantage of others. Don't look for people that are vulnerable. How many know people are preying on people all the time? And it's tragic. This is true in various areas of our lives. They look for people who don't have the resources to protect themselves. And whenever we enrich ourselves, and I'll just pick on the financial side for a minute. At the expense of others, we're actually fighting against God. Because look what verse 23 says. For the Lord will take up their case and will exact life for life. Wow. Now, you know what's so often, uh, let me just put it this way. God actually tells us he's going to be the advocate of the person you're exploiting. You're going to find yourself fighting God. Anybody want to win that one? You want to try that one? The poor, by not having human protectors, Richard Clifford writes, have Yahweh as their protector. Paradoxically, their poverty gives them a more powerful protector than the rich could afford. Isn't that, a, isn't that an interesting paradox? 
One of the things rarely pointed out in churches is the warning that the Apostle Paul makes against those who exploits others in the church family at a financial level. We, we, we rarely talk about this, but we're going to talk about it now. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? I don't care what you say. A lot of people will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? He says, I never knew you. Because if you have a true faith in God, it should shape the way you live. I know if you're a Christian by the way you live. Not just by the way you talk, the way you live. He says here, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. Those are the sexual sins. Yeah, we, we talk about that. Actually, you know, the church is even fading on this one. We're not talking about anything anymore. We're not warning anybody of anything. I'm saying, hey, you better pay attention. There's a day coming when the behavior that we have been you know, espousing is going to be evaluated by God Almighty. That's called the day of the Lord, folks. Here's, here's the part that I, I rarely have heard growing up in the church. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So if you're taking advantage of people financially, don't think you're, don't, don't, you don't have a ticket booked for heaven just because you said a little prayer. Are you hearing me? Are you hearing it? How many are hearing it? Now you got to live it. You can't just say it. It's got to be possessed in your life. But, you know, I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to encourage you. Because you know what? These list of sins, guilty. I'm guilty. Maybe you aren't, but I am. This is what Paul says. And that is what some of you were. Past tense. But you were washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. How many are so thankful that we have a redeeming, forgiving, delivering God? Are you happy? Are you happy? So even though you may be guilty, Jesus is willing to forgive us and write paid in full. Isn't that great? I love it. The gospel is good news that despite these sins, God's grace can change our hearts and help us truly love others and treat them without exploiting and manipulating them. It's interesting that one of the reasons why the northern tribes went into, slave, uh, went into captivity is because they were exploiting the poor. They were guilty of taking the poor into slavery, levering, levying unfair taxes and taking their garments that they had given in pledge. Look what Amos his charges. This is what Amos says, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and they deny justice to the oppressed. Amos 5.11. You levy a straw tax on the poor and you impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions. Listen, can I just say something? You know, you, if, if you're benefiting with the help of other people, Help the other people. Do more, you know. I learned something. It's always, it, I'm going to say crazy things today, but I, they're true. You know, one of the things that I, I, I feel very strongly about, you know, sometimes in churches, the senior pastor gets a huge salary and the rest of the staff get very little. That's unjust and it's evil. We, do, we don't do it that way. Thank God for that. You know, I feel strongly about that. Or if you own a business, you know, I remember working in a restaurant. One of the smartest restaurant owners 
paid all of his staff better wages than every other restaurant. Guess what happened? He had better staff. Lower turnover. Come on, guys. Treat people nice. Treat them right. People respond. Don't take advantage of people. He goes on to say, for I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. These are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Wow. No wonder when Jesus was asked what was the greatest command, he said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh, by the way, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you don't love your neighbor, you really don't love God. I can prove that from Scripture. The second danger to living a godly and wise life is to avoid relationships with angry people. This is really important. Listen to what Proverbs says. Do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with one easily angered. And then he goes on to say, or you may learn their ways and get yourself ensnared. What's he saying? If you hang around hot-tempered people that are constantly dealing with anger, you're going to learn that behavior. As a matter of fact, Robert Alden rightly points out, as is common in human nature, we catch on to sin faster than we do righteousness. How many go, that's true? We learn bad behavior faster than we learn good behavior. You know, I'm going to say what's going on today. We have a lot of angry people. How many say our culture's angry? We have an angry, you know, people feel so angry. They're, they're, they're offended. There's so much injustice. There's so much anger. And, you know, people are on the edge. And you never know, you know, when, when, when you say something or do something, you have no idea what this person's going to do next to you, you know. They can explode. They can go home and get a gun and shoot a bunch of people at the office. Come on now, isn't that what's happening? We got angry people out there. And he says, don't hang with them, otherwise you'll learn that. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced that a lot of people are being stirred up. They're being stirred up continuously. They're being worked up. They're getting stirred up about this thing and that thing and the other thing. Come on. Let me tell you something. And I said it about three weeks ago. If you start reading the Bible more, you'll unstir yourself. You'll actually have more peace coming into your life. You'll actually have a deeper confidence in God. You'll actually realize it doesn't matter who's running the country. Shock of all shock. I know a lot of you are politically inclined, but it doesn't really ultimately matter who's running the country because I honestly believe there's someone over him or over her. I believe there's a God in heaven. I believe he's sovereign and he's in control. I believe I can get on my knees and talk to Almighty God. I believe that the hands of the king are in the, you know, in the hands of God. God can move that person any which way he wants him to move. Come on now. It changes your whole attitude about what in the world is going on. That doesn't mean we, we ignore problems. It doesn't mean we're not trying to address issues, but we got to move away from this constant anger that's inside of people. As a matter of fact, it's interesting, and I like the way David Hubbard points it out, level-headedness, control of temper, and patience are prime requisites for leadership. As a matter of fact, if you go to 1 Timothy, it says if you're a leader, you can't be losing your cool all the time. One way to cultivate these traits is to avoid friendships with those whose lives are stamped by fury and anger. No kidding. Third thing, don't make rash financial promises. Do not be one who shakes hand in pledge or puts up security for debts. If you lack the means to pay, your very bed will be snatched from under you. What's he saying here? You know, a lot of times we're asked to sign for other people. Now, I'm going to say this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But unless you have the money to pay that loan back, and unless you're prepared to lose it all, don't sign. How's that? Real simple. Unless you're willing to give that as that 
as a gift to that other person without being upset and full of recrimination and bitterness and angry, don't do it. But you know, a lot of people have, and a lot of people have ended up paying other people's debts and been very angry about it. See, a wise person says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying you better have the money and you better be prepared to give it away as a gift. That's all I'm saying. Let me move on to the second set of expectations. And these are the things to embrace. And there's two of them here we're going to look at. The first aspect of wise living, I believe, is to honor the past, which we are not doing today, by the way. Listen to what Proverbs 22, 28 says. Don't, do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your ancestors. Now, let's, let's take a look at what's really being said here, and then we'll apply it to our context. First of all, these were literally ancient boundary stones marked out as land inheritances. Now, in the nation of Israel, they were to go in and possess the land. The land was the gift from God. So that first generation drew sacred lots to find out what part of the land belonged to them, and then all of their tribe and all of the people had that marked out for them. But as a matter of fact, when you study the Old Testament, isn't it fascinating that in the year of Jubilee, everybody had to give back the land that was a person's inheritance from God? Isn't that interesting? But you know what people do? You know, people always find a way around the law. Isn't that true? If there's a way around it, we're going to find it. What they would do is they literally move the boundary markers. And sometimes they'd move it ever so slowly. So, you know, you would, people's boundaries were shrinking and other people were being enriched at the expense of others. It kind of fits in with don't exploit the poor. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 23.10 says, Do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the field of the fatherless for their defender. Notice that's capitalized. That's an allusion to God is strong and he will take up their case against you. And we know, we read it earlier, God will advocate for you. Here was one of the areas that exploitation was, was practiced. Though we see the specific situation of this Proverbs and what it was speaking to, we can make an application that we need to be cautious in making changes from the past. You see, we think everything that's new is better. How many, that's true. This culture teaches that. Almost everything new is better. Not so, not necessarily. Now, I'm not arguing to embrace tradition for the sake of tradition. I think we need to value and learn from the past. Otherwise, we'll be guilty of destroying some great things of value, number one. And number two, when we need to make changes from the past that were nasty and evil and unjust, which we do need to do, we shouldn't even destroy that historical record. And we should get away from historical revisionism. And I'll tell you why. It's so important that you and I learn the lessons from the past, even the things that people did wrong. As a matter of fact, when I read the Bible, that's all I'm learning. Most of the stuff people did in the past was the wrong thing rather than the right thing. And I need to learn from that behavior so I don't repeat it and you don't repeat it. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says this, and he's speaking about the, remember the people that God led out of, out of Exodus, you know, the, out of the, uh, the slavery and captivity of Egypt, and then he led them into the promised land, and then this is what Paul says, now these things occurred as what? As an example. How many know we need examples? Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, let me give you an example. To keep us from setting our hearts on, not heats, but hearts, type on my part, on evil things as they did right? Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us 
on whom the culmination of the ages has come. In other words, he's saying, listen, we're, we're in a new age. How many know we're in a new age? The Old Testament was one age. We're in a new age, folks. This new age is, is, is the kingdom of God has been introduced. The king has been introduced. Jesus is the king. We're seeing things so differently than what they did in the old covenant. We have a new covenant. The second area we need to embrace is the value of excellence and diligence in our lives. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine 29 says, Do you see someone skilled in their work? They will serve before kings, and they will not serve before officials of low rank. Do you realize skill has a way of bringing people to the attention of others? That's what he's saying here, especially those in leadership. One of the things that good leaders are looking for is a high degree of competence in two areas. Number one, people skills. Number two, good work skills. Isn't that true? If, you're, if you own a business, you're just going, amen, preach it, pastor. That's what we look for. You want honest people. You want hardworking people. You want diligent people, right? You want people that have good people skills and don't irritate all your customers and tick them off. Come on now. Isn't, how many say, pastor, you're, 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 that's exactly right. You know, you've got to have good people skills. And then you've got to have competencies. You know, you could have some of the great people skills, but low competencies. It's, but he says, no, no, listen, be diligent. Learn. Give your best to it. You know, don't stop developing. Don't quit. You know, oh, I got my degree now. I've got four of them. You know, you know, you know why I got them? It wasn't so much I, I thought, well, if I'm going to do all this learning, I might as well get credit for it. I just kept learning. And I'm still learning. Every week I'm learning. You know why I have confidence when I get up here and preach that you're not going to be bored every week? Because I go, I never knew that. I'm, I'm sharing things I'm learning. So I know that you don't have all those answers either, right? We're learning together. The Hebrew word for skill is also translated an expert or someone who is diligent in their work. Tremper Longman says, those who work hard and with skill will succeed in their careers. That's a modern application. Or Robert Alden says, the way to influence kings or impress employers, says verse 29, is to do a good job. Gifts, bribes, or even boasting achieve little by comparison. Those in charge generally know who is most productive. Getting quiet in here. Can I just say something? When you have a downturn in the economy and you're a business owner, you know what the first thing you do is? If I have to make cuts, I'm going to take the people who they consider are borderline people. They'll just cut them out. They'll do that. Right? It's true. You may not like it. You may not appreciate it. But you know what? When you become an invaluable person, they're not going to cut you. They can't afford to. They won't do it. You know, one of the things I learned from, you know, observing pastors of large churches, I mean, I know a lot of them. And one of the churches that I, I, I respected was a church in Seattle area called Westgate. And I noticed how they would staff their church. Whenever somebody came available that was extremely skilled and gifted, they would hire them even if they didn't have the position. Because they said, you know, you just don't find these people every day. If somebody becomes available like that, we just bring them on staff and we find a place for them in our organization. Because we know that there are some people that actually produce in an organization and there's a lot of people that are just being carried by the organization. And I learned that. I, I watched what they were doing. That was a very good church. And they had learned an amazing principle. Why am I telling you this? Be the kind of people that you are so productive 
that people can't let you go. It'll cost their organization. If they lose you, this is going to be a major disruption to their organization. It's going to be a major cost to them. Be that kind of person. That's what I'm trying to tell you from this proverb. As a matter of fact, Paul, in writing instructions to those who were actually in slavery, he talked about them serving with sincerity of heart. Listen to what he says. I, I, I don't have it on the slide here, but it says in Colossians 3.22, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. What's he saying? When you work, who are you working for? The Lord. The Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. You say, well, why should I do that? He doesn't really appreciate what I'm doing. You're not working for him. You're not working for her. You're working for him. Are you seeing it? And when you start thinking like that, it changes how you work. You're saying, I'm going to give my best. Now, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm actually in charge of most of the staff. You know what I, my attitude and expectations for them? If they're giving their best, that's all I can expect. I would never ask for more than their best. Can you, that would be crazy. But at the end of the day, if they're not giving you their best, that's different. How many know what I'm saying? You see what I'm getting at? I'm trying to teach you something. I want you to succeed. I'm trying to tell you, if you always do your best and you're doing it as unto the Lord, even if your earthly employer never acknowledges and never, you know, recognizes you, doesn't affirm what you're doing, can I just tell you this? There'll be one in heaven that sees it and God will take care of you. God will make sure you will do well. Yeah, it's the way it works. So whatever our vocation and calling, may we realize we're actually doing it to the Lord and not just on behalf of people. You know, as much as I love our church, I love people, I love you, ultimately, there's moments where you have, you know, you wear down, you're tired or whatever, or you have somebody upset about something you can't control anyways. At the end of the day, I'm realizing I have to answer to one person. I do, I do have a responsibility to our board. I do have a responsibility to our membership. I have a responsibility to you, but ultimately, who do you think I'm responsible for or to? God. And so if I say something, you go, I didn't like what you said, I'm going, if it's in the word of God, I'm going to say it. That's just how my mind works. So what's shaping our lives? It's that which we expose ourselves to. We're living in a day that we could be deeply influenced by ideas from all over the globe through various forms of media. And I will argue that you are being influenced by two primary areas. Number one, ideas, and number two, people. Those are the two areas. That's why these Proverbs are so powerful. Ideas and people deeply influence our lives. Right ideas and wise people empower and help shape our lives. God's Word has to be foundational. It has to become internalized. And when God's Word shapes us, we're going to develop such a confidence in God, you won't be manipulated by others. Let me just say, let me close with this. There's an old expression, cream rises to the top. And one example of these Proverbs being lived out is in the life of Daniel. Remember Daniel, the book of Daniel? Remember, he was a guy that served. He outlived different kings. It's amazing. He was, he was actually, think about how difficult his life was as a teenager taken into captivity. And there, you know, 
He was stripped of everything, his heritage, his family, his name, which is your personal identity, his, lang- uh, his, uh, his family, his name, his language. And he was taught the language and the culture of the Babylonians. And yet through it all, Daniel maintained his faith in God. Isn't that beautiful? And he served in the Babylonian courts, and eventually the Persians came to power, and he served in the Persian courts. And he excelled to such a degree that he was, you know, the Persian king's top guy. Isn't that amazing? How many notice? He's living out this proverb that I'm talking to you about. And despite all of these great oppositions, despite all the challenges, even the king telling him to worship the wrong God, and Daniel wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't do those things. Daniel did the right things. And then I think of this old kid's chorus that goes something like this. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to fight alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. Isn't that a powerful little kid song? During this time in our world, what are needed are people with heart. Because that's what courage means. You see, if you're discouraged today, you just lack heart. And if you're courageous today, it's because you have heart. And I'm telling you right now, the way to get courage and the way to have heart is to get to know God. It's real simple. And if you really get to know God and you are so uh, wired into his worldview and you see life through his lens, it changes you. Because all of a sudden now, you can stand alone against the tide of humanity and recognize, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on a narrow path. There's not a ton of us on this path, but there are some of us on this path. And the rest of us are going to a broad road leading to destruction. And I purpose in my heart that I'm going to stay on this path. Let's stand this morning. People who have biblical wisdom fear God. And let us pray that we will learn from the wisdom writers to internalize what God's saying. That it just becomes who we are. And what will happen, you're going to surprise yourself because you know what? You don't know who you are. And I don't know who I am until crisis comes. How many go, that's true? Tests really reveal who you are right now. And you know what? That's why James says, count it pure joy when you're into these times. We should be rejoicing in times of COVID. We should be the people with their heads held high and say, I have a confidence in a God who can keep me. I have a confidence in a God who is directing my steps. I have a confidence in a big and a mighty God. I don't let fear rule and reign in my soul. I'm his servant. You're his servant. And we're going to live with heart. How many here say, I choose to be a Daniel? I choose to live with heart this morning. I choose to let the word of God become my, my, actually my worldview. I'm going to let the Bible search me. I'm not going to use the world's grid to search, you know, to interpret. In other words, to basically say, well, this, I, I don't agree with the Bible here. Well, I think the world is out to lunch, personally. And what, what you're going to find out is whatever worldview you're standing on, when the tough times come, you'll find out which worldview is true. You'll find out which worldview is true in an hour of crisis. That's what'll happen. And I'm guaranteeing you, if you're standing on the word of God and you're getting to have confidence and get to know God, 
you're in great shape. You're going to transcend time. Listen to what Jesus said. My word is eternal. My word is eternal, folks. It's unchanging. You can stand on it. It'll take you through world wars. It'll take you through great depressions. It'll take you through famine. It'll take you through pestilence. It'll take you through plagues. It'll take you through all the challenges that will come your way. But I'm not so guaranteed that this worldview we're living in right now will take you anywhere but to death and destruction. That's where it'll take you. So we have a choice today. Whom will you serve? I love that, you know, Joshua. Whom will you serve? That's what we're challenging you. Develop a biblical worldview. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters this morning, and I thank you for those that are listening that may not know you. But I pray today that they will have heard the voice of your, your voice speaking through me. And Father, that they will begin to embrace the word of the living God. They will begin to build their lives on what you say, Father, rather than listening to the counsel of a confused majority. And I just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave.